Lewis, you had a very controversial tweet in the last couple of days saying there's a 99.9% chance that we do not get this film in May. Why? Well, there's no marketing. It, it's coming out, but it's not coming out in May. Like if you put a bad solo movie, let's say Han Solo comes out in May because it has to come out in May and audiences hate it. The cost, the long-term cost associated with that, the fact that they put out a bad movie, is is much worse. I'd lean more toward Lewis's side of this. That film is a complete mess and they still don't know what to make of it. So you're having a the Avengers Infinity War, which is basically going to um, print money, come out in May, which is also owned by Disney. You're going to have your own movie cannibalize your other movie at the end of the month. Nobody's going to probably go see Solo because they're going to still be riding the hype train that is Avengers Infinity War. So something better for them to do would be to move it to like an October release date. They are going to move that because they don't want to have it basically be just devoured by another one of their movies. So if they take a huge loss on Solo, nobody's going to notice it. After all the freaking money that's being printed from it from the Avengers. So it can be a wash movie that everyone can just be like, it didn't do good. Oh, well, I guess it was all those rewrites and stuff. Are bad for putting it out next to one of our own movies that's gonna that blew the doors off of every theater. I think those films are too big. Like, the Star Wars and Marvel movies are too big to be swept under the rug. They're just... They're enormous. And they can't fail. Like, they can't be bad. Yeah, so why not just move the movie? That's what they're going to do. I'm uh, going to bet that we're going to see Solo, a Star Wars story, in December 2018. We're going to make it be really specific, so a year from now we can bring you back on. I just want to say I look forward to seeing um, the Solo movie in the Walmart bargain bin. Oh, no, I'm I'm not saying it's going to come out in theaters. I'm saying that's where we'll find it. Who here cares about a solo movie, in all honesty? Who here is like, I want a solo movie to happen? Welcome to the Knights of Vader, a Star Wars podcast. It is June 6, 2018, and we're talking more solo nonsense. Check out our sponsor, SkywardFunSupply.com. From Funko Pops to three and three quarter inch figures and all the way to six inch solo black series. SkywardFunSupply.com is your home for Star Wars toys. My name is Zach Weber. Tonight I'm joined by Mark. Hello, everyone. And Zanger. Everything you heard about me is true. And welcoming him back once again to the Knights of Vader is Lewis, aka Sleepy Skunk. Hey, guys, how's it going? All right, I guess Lewis. we didn't do a good job the last time. I mean, what? <laughs> oh, the episodes. I, I listened to Once Lewis contacted us and was like, I want to come back. Like, when am I coming back on? I went back and listened to that episode. And, oh, boy, that episode is just, it's oddly prophetic. It <laughs> is just, it's just, oh, man, it's just so many things that, uh, again, as anybody heard in the intro that nobody's heard this time except for me, it is a fantastic uh, 
crystal Lewis has a crystal ball back in January, or I guess it was December. He looked into said crystal ball and he saw the nightmare that was going to unfold around solo. So Lewis, you were saying this before we started recording, but if you don't mind repeating again, please tell us the catastrophic state solo is in right now. Well, it's a, it's kind of a Guinness record of sorts. Um, not only because of the opening weekend, being so dismal and underneath expectations, analysts were predicting 150 million, and then I think it did it did below 100. But then, obviously, Memorial Day has this four-day weekend that sort of makes the numbers inflated a little bit, look bigger than they are. But I think, like in in the first three days, it did 87, um, and they were predicting 150. So that's like that's almost like half of what it was supposed to do. It's not a big concern per se because when big movies open back to back, sometimes people are not inclined to go three times in a row to see movies. And I think the same audience is targeted for Deadpool 2 and Infinity War. So the second weekend is, is the big controversy or, or the uh, catastrophe because it, made, uh, it had a 65% drop, which no big movie this year has had. And most major blockbusters every summer never experience it means basically in its second weekend everybody ignored it as opposed to uh, a low drop or like a you know like a 35 40 percent drop means oh people are gonna go because of star wars it just didn't go opening weekend uh the opposite happened like people deserted the movie theaters no one wants to see this it's it's an absolute disaster for everyone involved and it's interesting to discuss why, because I think there's at least a dozen reasons out there that are arguable as to why it did so poorly. I want on record, um, Solo's drop, according to Box Office Mojo, I'm going to nickel and dime Lewis here. Solo had a second weekend drop of 65.2%. Deadpool 2 had 65.4%. So you know what? I'm, I'm going to... This to give Solo a little bit of saving face, I'm going to give it that two one-hundredths of a percent. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to try to shield this poor movie from dying the dog's death that it's currently undergoing. Anything to try to protect this poor movie. But no, um, jokes aside, uh, Lewis is absolutely correct. This movie, uh, I, I don't think... I, whenever, when, I would imagine when this film was pitched, I can't imagine anybody, any Disney executive in their worst nightmare... Imagining this film making less than four hundred million worldwide, I, I, I think that was unheard of. Um, when I we had a last week, Lewis, we had a guest host on, and in the weeks leading up to Solo, he said he was hearing word that this film was going to perform even worse than Justice League. Something that I don't think again anybody even expected in their worst nightmares. But here we are. That's, um, your, that's your crystal ball guest uh, that you're talking about. Whoever. It is. It's funny. In, in our when you're in your last Jedi uh, discussion with us, you do say that there's a good chance that Disney does to Star Wars what uh, Warner Brothers was ending up doing with the DCEU, and that they're going to do more harm with this franchise by just overexposing it than taking time and just reevaluating their uh, long-term plans. For, oh, for sure. So I have to ask you, Lewis, why do you think this is bombing? The, the Star Wars fan base is kind of on fire right now. Um, there's kind of like a civil war going on at the Star Wars fan base, which is a topic for another day. But why do you think? I, I don't want to narrow it down to one or two reasons, but give us a nutshell. Why do you think this movie is bombing the way it is? 
I think the number one reason, which is the one we discussed last time I was on, is there was no marketing for it at a time where there had to be marketing for it. And, you know, for yeah. us, you could drop a trailer a week before a movie opens for, for people like us who follow this stuff and have Twitter accounts where we discuss this stuff all the time. One week notice is more than fine. We'll be there. But the average person, think of people in your lives who are busy and are not particularly fond of movies, but, you know, they went to see Black Panther, they went to see Infinity War, and they're probably going to see one or two more this year, and that's it. And to them, movies is more of a Friday night, long-term relationship, you know, affordable date, as opposed to a passion and something they follow. They don't, they don't know what's going on. These people were not aware of this film until the Super Bowl spot dropped, and that's about a three-month window. That's not enough to reach those people. And this is where the money is. It's these, these average moviegoers. They have to be aware of something before they get excited about it. You sort of have to promote to them twice. You have to say, hey, this movie exists and it's coming out. And then with another trailer, so that's the difference between you know teaser and then trailer. With the trailer, then you really go into reasons why they should see it it never made the awareness stage because there's so much noise and so many movies this year were competing for attention in the first quarter. People didn't even know this movie was coming out. Um, and then for those who saw it, I, I think the problem with the film is that, you know, it's not, it's not a bad movie by any means. I think considering the situation they were in, they, they put something together that's pretty enjoyable as, as casual entertainment, but It, there, there are no stakes. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, there's, there's this final fight going on in an office. <laughs> you know, like, I thought they were going to use office supplies, like a stapler or, like, um, you know, they're, they're sort of, yeah, they're fighting with blades or something. And, you know, the, there's... Guys, guys I, I gotta get off. I thought this was a Star Wars podcast. I didn't know we were talking about John Wick. <laughs> <laughs> so... Here, what you're saying is that it basically comes down to marketing, right? <laughs> it comes, again, it comes down to marketing, and then it comes down to a product which doesn't matter. So, so for those who didn't go see it, they didn't have, they, they weren't convinced because they weren't, re it wasn't on their radar. For those who were convinced or gave it a chance, you come out of this film basically not further or not anywhere different on your perception of the Star Wars universe. You're exactly at the same point you were. It's like you, you jump into a car uh, and then you wait there for an hour and you walk out, you're like, all right, that was good. It's <laughs> like, oh, there's, there's no going from point A to point B. Like we're exactly where we were. And everything in this film is very inconsequential. Um, and I think coming off Infinity War, which is the absolute opposite of that, it's a 10 year buildup that delivers, um, which had, you know, is, had never been done in, in, in movie going history. I think like that much of a crescendo and momentum, that many characters that have all been developed in other films, then, you know, that's the new bar. Like that's the new standard is people want consequential entertainment. They want like, they, they want to cry. They want to be surprised. They want to be shocked when, when someone's going to die or when someone's going to, Um, turn on uh, on the dark side, um, and in the, in Solo, I mean, it doesn't matter. 
Like everything that happens, it doesn't matter. It, lo it looks like a, a fan fiction, a big budget fan fiction. You know, the movie's getting, you know, decent reviews that word of mouth would go out and, you know, it would, you'd see not as quite a big drop, you know, from opening weekend to this past weekend. Is it getting, I mean, what's the word of mouth out there? I mean, people, a lot of people are saying it's all right. You know, my brother liked it. He said it was good. And he's a casual, you know, movie goer. Is it like you have to see there? So is it like, yeah, you know, it's good. So wait, what you're saying is that it's not really an event film. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, exactly. Unlike every Star Wars ever. And I, and I, and I think it comes back to the marketing. The marketing didn't make it feel like it, it was meant to be. The marketing didn't make it, didn't sell it like an event film. I think that's probably the issue. I think the marketing was done terribly. I mean, I can't even think of a marketing campaign for it. Like, it, I'm I'm seriously sitting here wondering, like, what what did that mean? They had the Super Bowl ad, which is great, but I mean, there was a few things on ABC, you know, on the ABC network. There was a few commercials, and you know, they had like, oh, check this out, and this, that, and the other. There's that one like movie right now. Um, what's it called? Um, Hereditary or Harry? That, that's one a horror movie that I swear to God I can't click anywhere on the internet and not have some freaking ad play for it. It is everywhere, and it's like I I have no interest in horror movies. Why is whatever algorithm that I'm keyed into keep picking up that I want to see stuff for this? Because I don't, but I never saw barely any Star Wars stuff. And that's the thing. I think they did a horrible job marketing this because they were just like, oh, it's a Star Wars movie. And that taught them a very valuable lesson, I think. It's interesting you bring up the marketing zanger. Uh, mm -hmm. Tonight, while waiting for this, I was um, I, I was uh, on Disney XD, which is in the cable ghetto. I was watching Meet the Robinsons. And like every commercial break, they had a commercial for Solo. And it was the strangest commercial I've ever seen for a modern blockbuster. It told it gave us about a thirty second spot, and all it was it didn't tell you anything about the movie. It shows like the scene of like the end of the movie with Orlando, like in the uh, jungle casino, or I guess bar. Oh, I know which one you're talking about now. All right, okay, you know what I'm talking about. And it's like Rio Durant's like you can't sit there and not invite a Wookiee to a party, and then Chewie laughs, and then like a bunch of this random action happens, and then it's like it's it's Alden Ehrenreich as Han Solo saying something like "Let's go," and it says "Solo: A Star Wars Story" now in theaters, and I'm like. How on earth is this coherent marketing? It doesn't tell me. Like obviously, I, if you wouldn't well, know, a, I, I, Star I got Wars. it. I got it. I got it. Here, here's all you have to do: just have a voiceover go, find out where it all began, show a ton of action stuff. You know, the Falcon and stuff like that. Like just, just have the voiceover. Just, just go. Just find out where it all began, and then at the very end, have them go solo a Star Wars story. Right, there, like, I, I just did exactly what um, someone got paid a ton of money not to do. And that, well, yeah, and that's what this is. This I think the marketing. I, I didn't watch any of the TV spots uh, leading up to the film, but I don't think they did a. I still think the. Okay, I'll get to this in a moment, though. I still think the title was stupid. They really you couldn't have picked a worse title for this other than just solo. Getting back to what Lewis said with um, Marvel in the event film. Um, obviously, everything today is trying to follow the uh, Marvel template. Everything has to emulate Marvel, and I think I made this uh, comparison before. On a previous episode, but I have a feeling, and Lewis, tell me if I'm wrong. I feel like this film is the Captain America, the first Avenger, 
of the Star Wars universe. Because if everybody remembers, the first Avenger only made around $170 million domestically and around 370 internationally. And that, and obviously, Captain America has now, as a character, has exploded in popularity. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that in seven years from now, Alden Ehrenreich uh, Han Solo is going to be as big as that. But I have a feeling that this is one of those films that's meant to open doors. It's not meant to break the hinges or blow the hinges off the doors. Am I wrong? I, I know there's obviously a big difference in the production cost. But I have a feeling that's what they were going for with this. I'm trying to remember how I really felt about the first Avenger when it came out. I just felt it was just, okay, we've got to get all these done. And I just kind of shrugged my shoulders at it. And I, we had to watch it recently over again. And I kind of really enjoyed it on a later viewing again, just to kind of go back to a simpler time and everything in the whole Marvel Universe. So that was really cool. But at the same time, it had so much going. I mean, it... It, it it didn't do I don't I'm I'm not shocked that it didn't do well. It was one of those things that when it came out, I was just like, I need to see this to get the full story before I go and see Avengers. It it, it felt more like I was going off a checklist than going to see a movie to enjoy it. I think I think the comparison is good. Um and and the Marvel cinematic universe really took off post Avengers. So if you look at the Ed Norton Incredible Hulk numbers and the Thor, the first Thor um, it's about similar numbers. Like a Marvel film would make between 130 to 200 million domestic, uh, as opposed to Black Panther, which just beat Titanic basically. Um, and I think um, I think the big difference here, and you know, I'm going to connect that to, to the point I had is, imagine if they did Captain America: The First Avenger as a Marvel film following a movie of the skill of Infinity War where Captain America was brutally murdered and his, his life ended on a bummer and it's a very sad moment and then after that they invite audiences to relive his younger years like a eulogy. <laughs> so you're saying this film should have been called uh, Han Solo's Eulogy, a Star Wars film or story. It should be called Eulogy, a Star Wars story. <laughs> that, that, that is a very interesting point. That is a good point. That there is a, like, I really, because I just want to get into this. You said, Lewis, that it was a very, what, what are your thoughts on it in a sense, like, personally-wise? You, you, you said it was serviceable, but did you enjoy it? Did, you said it had no stakes, but anything beyond that? I think, I think the train sequence is when the pace starts picking up a little bit. And, uh, and then we're reminded that we're watching a summer popcorn movie and that the most skilled, you know, technical craft speed, like only like the most skilled people in Hollywood are in charge of this spectacle. Um, but thank God for, for that uh, happening fairly early in the film. And, um, you know, it's a lot of a, a pain by numbers. Let's try to not make any mistakes. I don't know, like there's a lot of specific examples, but like the way certain characters come in and out of the film and the way they are portrayed, it it does feel a little bit sloppy or messy. Um, you know, just like the way Lando is expecting a ship uh, because of a, a bad bet, but then it never really bothers him at all. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll help you. And then he comes along with them because I guess he has to be in the film, but really he doesn't have to go unless I wasn't paying attention properly like 
he doesn't really have to be there with them, but he's there because he's, you know, he's one of their, like, look at how Star Wars faithful our, our screenplay is. There's a lot of these, like, let's not make any mistakes, let's not offend anyone, um, which is, uh, it gives a product that is a bit uh, microwavable, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, I, I, uh, that definitely makes sense. Like, I was saying... Um in our last episode, that this is a very uh, insulated film. I think it's kind of like uh, the equivalent of like wrapping something in bubble wrap with like 14 layers. It's so safe, yeah, yet at the same time, something that's so safe can't be... It's kind of like, imagine taking like a Game Boy that you can have fun with, but you wrap it in so many layers of this like insulation and just stuff to cushion it, that at the end of the day, you really don't know what it is. It's like, it's super safe, but it has no purpose anymore. Um, I, I think it's a very enjoyable film. It's probably one of the most fun Star Wars films, um, considering that Star Wars has become incredibly serious. Ever since Disney took it over, every film is life or death um, stakes. There's Everything is on the verge of catastrophe. And I, I guess that was always Star Wars, but I don't think you ever got the full vibe of that in the original trilogy, except for maybe Empire. Um, but no, going. I just wanted to get your feelings for the film. But going back to what you're saying with um, Han Solo and the fact that um, Han Solo dies in The Force Awakens in a very brutal ma- manner in the sense that he's impaled by his son. And you really, like, even going back to The Last Jedi, you never really get a, any sort of aftermath or consequence from Han Solo's death in that film, considering that he is such a massive component of this cinematic universe, and he's more or less just an afterthought in that film. Pretty much, like, yeah. Yeah, that's a very good point. That we really—it's a weird thing that you, you don't get any mention of Han Solo outside of one line of dialogue in Last Jedi. Yet the very next film is a, a film completely devoted to oh look, this guy's basically a space pirate. He's gonna have a fun life, and you realize oh wait, his son's gonna murder him in forty years. It, it, there's something very subconscious about that, and I'm you know I'm not bringing this up as like this is the reason why the film didn't make two hundred million. Like it's uh, there's something about how did how did it make you feel the last time you saw Han Solo and the last time you heard his, his name and saw his character being portrayed? And did those feelings, are they making you want to go see this like um, fairly like incons- inconsequential slice of his life where he's, it looks like a Tuesday, you know, like, like, it's like yeah, that's the other thing that bothered me. Sorry to interrupt. That's the other thing that bothered me. Um, this takes place like over like a handful of days. Everything significant he do- like Han Solo does, minus Job of the Hut stuff, all happens to him in like a weekend, maybe. Pretty much. I've been thinking, what if you know, say they did push back the release of Solo till December for whatever reason? Um, do you think that maybe perhaps that would have helped in like? The box office numbers, like you know, not having it so sudden come up, would that have helped in, um, you know, high build up and all that, the marketing aspect as well? Yeah, I think I think there's no doubt. Um, there's something about a Star Wars film opening the week before Christmas that has become like a tradition. Um, so it's like it's like churches are, are packed on Christmas night, but the rest of the year, not so much. There's just, uh, there's something of a habit that a lot of families have developed, uh, since the force awakens. They're like, you know, let's, let's hang out 
even if it was like the Boba Fett film or um, doesn't matter. I think a December Star Wars film does better numbers than what came out. But I think ultimately the reason why I kept pushing for like they're gonna they're not gonna release it in May, and I kept saying that over and over is because it takes so much time to do proper a proper marketing campaign. It takes at least uh, six months, ideally nine to twelve. So that's why I thought like they'll realize from experience that you can't just start telling people this movie exists 12 weeks before and apparently um apparently they care more about mary poppins so there you go well, well the thing i heard was was that the the again lewis you are our hollywood insider here that was they, they there was a rumor going around i think maybe again who knows if it's true or not but that they wanted to push it back to an unspecified date but the life the license partners absolutely refuse to let them do that that would make sense because because um, e- even though this film again like you, th- you do think about it even though it did not get as heavy as a merchandise or a tie-in push as some other star wars films there was that whole denny's thing that we all i'm not sure if you heard about it but that was pretty big in the sense of like amongst star wars fans which i think is preaching to the choir but like th- there were certain things like in the toys kind of just trickled out come april and there seems to be a f- I don't know, not as much merchandise as there usually is for a Star Wars film. But considering for a film that was v- had very tumultuous production and kind of was all over the place, it seemed they did kind of have their ducks lined up in a row, or at least merchandise-wise. Oh yeah, the the toy the toy business has a lot of pull as a lobbyist of how films turn out, which characters appear in which films, when does it get released. They have a lot of pull because, I mean, profit on a toy is much higher than on a movie ticket. Um, so we're talking, you know, like a single action figure that gets built in China is going to cost uh, nothing to make, but they'll sell it like fifty nine ninety nine, and it just creates numbers that are imposing in terms of where everybody profits in these major productions. So like. Why was Venom rushed in Spider-Man Three? That's because of the toy, like it's because of Hasbro, it, like because it sells. It's a big name. It's a big villain, and it's it sells toys. Or why, like the Avengers are going to change their their haircuts. Like Black Widow's a different haircut in every Avengers movie. Or like uh, Thor had short hair. Uh, it's so they can sell more toys. So like the toy business does get heavily involved in the more surface conceptual aspects of these films and when they put pressure because maybe uh, you know the Jarvis Convention Center has a toy convention I believe in February of every year so if they already released all their solo stuff uh, and then the studio is trying to tell them it's not coming out um, yeah there's definitely a a power struggle happening on on every major film oh boy poor solo all right, uh, Louis, do you have any more talking points? or you Because I feel like I could, you have anything else you want to address with this before we get into any other questions we might have for you, or vice versa. No, I was mainly uh, really excited to let you guys know that I think it's because <laughs> they killed Solo. <laughs> it's such a bummer that people were depressed, and they were like, I don't want to be more depressed, so I'll just let him rest in peace, and I won't go see his movie. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's funny. Uh, um, so I, I got one. Go ahead, Zanger. Do you think this is a bad sign for other Star Wars projects that are in the same vein? Not the, not Episode Nine, but like a Boba Fett movie, uh, 
mall movie, uh, underworld movie, stuff like that. Do you think this is all auguring for a bad sign, or do you think that they may have be like, hey, we messed up, and it's this is on us. It's not on you know that people don't want Star Wars because that's what I'm kind of wondering is if they're like maybe people don't want Star Wars anymore, and it's like no, that's not this at all. I, I saw this like tweet that I'm being floating around. I can't even find the link anymore or something about like Lucasfilm. That's it. Lucasfilm should be careful and avoid um, some of the loudest and vocal fans in the fandom when it comes to criticism of of uh, Star Wars and Solo's box office failure or something like that. Because um, apparently they think that, you know, this is such a minority that, you know, they shouldn't fall into the trap of listening to them just because they're very loud on the internet because it's really a minority. You know, you know who else is loud on the internet? People bothering poor Marie Tran. Leave her alone. Yeah, that too. There's no problem with, with her character or her performance in The Last Jedi. I thought she was good. Yeah, it's just everyone on the internet decided to be mean to her and there's no need for it. Well, I wouldn't say everyone. I'd just say, like, the neck beard. Well, 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 the people that Star Wars is probably going to be like, huh, these people are making a good point about how they don't like this movie. Maybe we should... It's it's probably the same vein of people. We it's really right. need to do that episode soon, by the way, Zach. Oh, God. Oh, God. The Star Wars fan base is on fire right now, and I really don't want to get into it. Like, I, I, we have to get into it, but I really don't want to. It's kind of like walking into an inferno. Nothing good we'll, we'll, we'll do it. one of two things. We'll either throw gasoline or water. We'll find oh, out God. which. I don't, I don't think we can throw any more gasoline on it. It's kind of like, at this point, it's kind of like an oil fire. It's just like, how much worse can it get at the end of the day? I'll say quickly that Rogue One made over $500 million domestic and was a, a massive hit. And that was also a prequel, and that was also side characters. And so, I mean, I, the big difference between Rogue One and Solo at the conceptual level is that there are stakes in Rogue One, which is, you know, they're going to be able to steal the, the, the blueprint for the Death Star, which leads directly to what happens in A New Hope. Therefore... What they're up to, what the characters are up to, and what we're seeing them do on screen has major consequences as opposed to, like, let's steal a cargo of whatever for Paul Bettany so we can fight in his office with blades <laughs> and office supplies. I like to imagine, like, during the uh, initial like, script, like, read-throw in the Lucasfilm offices, Lewis was there doing the plot breakdown or reading like the stage notes for that sequence. So they're fighting it off and throwing office supplies at each other, and there's knives involved. That's what it looks like, sort of. Like a, like oh, the you're way not wrong. The lead character, the way he hides, like the way the, the guy who plays Han Solo, he hides behind the office desk. He looks like he's about to, to look for a weapon. Like it, it, it has that space balls kind of feel. Um, I, I thought as a final scene, as opposed to a lightsaber fight, you know, the witch Star Wars has, um, has made us accustomed to, uh, like the most epic thing ever, like the Phantom Menace for, for all its flaws, like it has like that crescendo that leads to, you know, the duel of the fates. Um, that was worth the, the ticket. Uh, but there's really no momentum going into whatever happens at the end of this film. And then there's this conversation with the surprise character at the end who says, you know, uh, you will report to me now. And, and that really shows you how, how small 
small time this entire operation was. It's like the guy who's above, the guy that we fear is a henchman to, like, it's like, it's a, it's a very small scale type of, type of adventure. It's, it's a story you tell to, um, to a bunch of people, you know, over dinner and it's, it's not particularly funny or interesting, but people are like, oh, cool. That's, that's a cool story. Well, that's, because I, I want to get back to Zenger's point about what, how they're going to, uh, what's Lucasfilm's response going to be to this, but to, you call it, to say something to what you just said, Lewis, um, this does come across as a film that people will definitely watch on Netflix, or I guess the Disney streaming service when that launches sometime next year. I would imagine this film's going to get a lot more respect, and people are like, oh, wow, that was pretty good. It, it had, even though there are some fun sequences in the movie, like the Kessel Run is fun to see on the big screen, the, the train heist is... It's a film I can imagine a lot of people watching on their television being like, I did not need to see this. In it's not Infinity War. Um, it does Even Deadpool 2, where with a comedy, you want that uh, audience experience. You can watch this in your home. I don't think... There, there's no Darth Vader in the Hall sequence. There's no Han Solo walking into the Millennium Falcon for the first time in 30-plus years. You, 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 it's not a film that requires an audience to appreciate. But getting back to the course corrections from Lucasfilm, Lewis, again, I don't, I don't think you addressed it exactly, though, but where do you think Lucasfilm is going to address this? Do you think they are going to sit there and say, I think it's safe to say there's going to be no more Star Wars films in May from now on. I would imagine they're going to abandon that release slot. Um, but do you think, like, are they going to go straight to an Obi-Wan Kenobi film because that's going to be the safest choice post episode nine or they still try to experiment with these kind of off the wall ideas like having darth maul be the ultimate villain of this film the usual way these things go is there's a restructuring internal so it could be kathleen kennedy losing her job oh no you fire the directors <laughs> oh wait i think i think she fails um consistently at hiring the right people and then letting them do what they were hired to do. Um, and that's more of an administrative type of skill as opposed to being a producer, which, you know, she's, she's known as one of the best producers in the business um, for, of all time. But there has been so many, and I think we mentioned that last time, Tony Gilroy actually put together Rogue One, and then there was Josh Trank, there was Colin Trevorrow, there was the, the Lord and Miller. Like, <laughs> the list the, goes on and on. The list goes on and on. It's like who 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 is still working there? Like who didn't get fired in this in this joint? So I mean, I think she could lose. She could be asked to to leave. Then the new person in charge is just gonna redirect in whichever whichever direction they see fit. So that's what's happening in the DCU after Justice League was a disaster. Wait, wait, what's happening with the DCU? Well, they clean house and they put uh, Walter Amada in, in charge. And this guy is the one who made really successful films out of no-name horror franchises like The Conjuring and uh, Annabelle creation, Insidious. Like he made $100 million films out of sort of a, a, a horror cinematic universe for Warner Brothers. So uh, he's going to decide where things go, and it, it's probably going to happen with Star Wars too. So there, there's a good chance that a lot of these in-development Star Wars films won't ever see the big screen like the ever see the light of day but they, okay so this is my thing about kathleen kennedy is you probably i'm not sure if you're aware of this lewis but there is this uh backlash where the the last jedi haters 
really want her head on a platter. And there is a again, I don't know how plugged you plugged in you are to the Star Wars fan base, but there is a very the oh god, uh, I call it the Star Wars pod, podcasting cartel. They are very uh, adamant. They are I don't, I don't want to use the term social justice warriors because I think that uh, term is too archaic at this point. But um, they are very much um, this is this is perfect, and don't you dare touch Kathleen Kennedy. So let's say Bob Iger or, or Alan Horn decides to uh, remove her, or even maybe even does like an doesn't an Amy Pascal to her, where they take her, they remove her from head of the the studio, and they demote her to just a producer on the films. Um, wouldn't there be a massive PR backlash to removing uh, a female head of the studio? I, I, would that be worth it then maybe give her because she is what three and one at this point so would they give her one more shot with episode nine and then maybe do something or do you think her head's basically on a platter and we haven't heard about it yet the reason for dismissal would be how how these productions all all got into trouble uh, the examples we enumerated like on her record are also the films that we never saw um not just the ones that that the, like the one that did poorly um, and you know, there's a chance that they might keep her on, but obviously it's going to slow everything down. Like when things are really successful, they start green lighting too many projects. And then when things are, are, are the way they are right now, I think they're second guessing and they're trying to understand why they misread people's interest of star Wars so much, so much so that like, yeah, like I can't imagine that first meeting, uh, you know, uh, after Memorial Day, it was a Tuesday. They had a day off to just, you know, <laughs> do but something. I, I don't think they did misread it. I, like I said, I think it's the marketing. I think it's also maybe you got to be willing to have these movies, maybe not smash it out of the box office every time if they're not the episodic ones. If the budget is, you know, um, in correlation with what you're suggesting then yes, that's strategy. You can make smaller Star Wars fare that is profitable, uh, you know, on its own at a, at a lesser scale. But the problem with Solo is that it was a brutally expensive film. They, it's two because, films. Yeah, because it was two films, technically. But the, was it, what, what was the budget for Solo? Like, just Zach, the production of it. Go! Well, the original they haven't given the original budget under Lord and Miller, but it's estimated at around 150 million. And after the Ron Howard uh, reshoots, um, it's estimated. And Lewis, correct me if I'm wrong. It's estimated in the ballpark of anywhere from 250 to 300. Is that correct? It's probably close to 300, and then some. Um, yeah, and that's without marketing cost either. Without marketing cost, and just being left. What they didn't use any of that money. That's the problem. They did. It just didn't work. Being being last minute in the film industry is uh, very costly because everybody who works as third parties uh, in post production or in production, they will double bill you and they will bill you over time. So if you say I need these special effects of uh, Lord Vader by Friday uh, or by the end of the month, as opposed to you have you know a year to work on this. That means overtime, and then overtime is paid twice. So, like a film that's not that impressive could be super expensive just because they rushed it, uh, which is kind of what happened here because it's just a different film, and they didn't move the release date. So they shot a film, they tra they trashed it, and then they shot another one without moving the release date. So I think a lot of these costs have to do with 
trying to trying to chase the bus, like trying to get on time for the release date, because um, it doesn't show on screen. It looks it looks like a pretty modest production. Yeah, it's one thing I say about this. It does not uh, reek of Justice League or Suicide Squad. It does not come across as a a film that was made in the editing bay. Yeah, if you showed me this movie, Suicide Squad, like a handful of movies, and said which one of these was, oh no, if you show me like ones that were edited together properly. And this one and go, hey, guess which one, you know, had a lot of trouble behind the scenes. And I just didn't. I wouldn't have guessed because the worst part of this movie, in my opinion, is the writing is really bad sometimes in it. But like it looks like it's a good movie still. It's just at certain points, there's you just kind of facepalm at the writing that was done for it. Uh, Zinger, can you explain about like the writing? Like, what do you mean? Like, 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 can you elaborate a little from your perspective of it? So. I, I went into this movie trying to be optimistic and trying to smile and have a good time with it. And I feel I did. I feel I came out, you know, rather positive about it. I'm like, hey, it was a fun movie. I, I actually enjoyed it. It's not definitely one of my first things to go to if I want to watch Star Wars. But due to everything that happened with it, I'm shocked that I even walked out of it with that much. Um, as for the hastily or the bad writing at points, it's... I don't blame and I Aaron Wright for a lot of his acting things. I just think that a lot of his lines were just terrible. Like, like do you have an example? I'm trying to think. Of, I had one earlier because I was thinking this earlier and I had one and now I can't remember it. it. It's just I just feel like there's certain people's lines that were just very static and very just stilted almost. Well, yeah, I think it's less of a I, I don't think it's a lines. I think maybe it's more just a story of it. It's a uh, very, it's a very briskly paced film. I think it's uh, that's one of my biggest complaints. The Force Awakens that it's a very briskly paced film. Yet it hits a wall sometimes because like like the momentum's just going at ninety miles an hour, and then it goes like it slows down to like fifty. So you get like tonal, you get like uh, oh god, pacing whiplash where it's like oh my god, where did this come from? Where this, I I think once it gets started, it never slows down. It's like okay, quick, we have to go rob the train. Quick, we have to go get a ship. Quick, we have to go to Kessel. Quick, we have to get back to the, the the plant where they can refine it. Quick, we have to get back to Dryden Voss. And it's just it's it's never ending. Just oh my god, get to the next thing quick. And it really and even the ending of the movie just kind of like abruptly ends. It's like he wins the ship. Chewbacca and him are in the cockpit. Cut the credits. And it's like wow. It's like it's like geez Louise. Like slow down there, buddy. It's like because sometimes you, you want to savor your meal. You don't want to like eat three courses all at once. You get heartburn that way. And I think that's the biggest issue. Like, I can't. Like, all, I know a couple people were saying this. Um, I think it. I forget who the critic was. Someone says there's like an egregious line in this film that's almost as bad as like some of the Attack of the Clones romance dialogue. Yeah, I didn't get that vibe from this. Like, I, I really, I, I as a film, again, I, I have a hard time being objective with Star Wars films, but it's, I, I really. It's a fun film. I get what Lewis is saying that it's not Infinity War. It's not this massive film. That's going to sit there, rock the the cinematic universe it takes place in. But at the same time, though, and I guess that's the problem with Hollywood is that they've built this culture of uh, blockbuster event films, and when something costs three hundred million dollars, and it does not, and they don't convey that's what it is in the marketing. It's it's I think that's the ultimate folly of this. But going back to the script, I I I don't think you can lay any fault at at that I, I really don't but lewis do you have any thoughts on the script of this do you think it was good bad serviceable 
Yeah, I think I think it's very efficient. Uh, I think we all agree about that. And sometimes too efficient. So like, there's this scene where Woody Harrelson uh, punches Solo in the face because you know the, the train uh, heist didn't go as planned, and he needed to deliver um, that shipment for his own sake, like for his own life. And in that same conversation, he's gonna go from punching him in the face and like. You didn't obey orders. And literally, like, we're two minutes into that conversation. And he's like, I'm your guy. Let's do this. I love you. I know. <laughs> like, really? He should have said that. Like, like, if someone's upset at you because you screwed up, you know, their livelihood or their, their ability to, to be free. So like, what they could have done was done that exact same scene, but not had them make up then, had them make up when they're on the ship. Like, he just basically drags him along exactly. with him. Exactly. And then had, like, had that had that have some more weight than just this instant, like, within the same paragraph of him ta- yelling at him, it goes from, I hate you, blah, 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 to, oh, okay, man, you're, you're good. Yeah, if you rewatch that scene, you're actually going to laugh knowing it's coming, like, like the, the the complete flip of, you know, like I just physically assaulted you in the face because you're such a like I hate you right now. And then, you know, you like I trust you, man. I know I'm your guy. Yes, you are. Let's do this. It's kind of um, it, it it goes back to what we were saying that the movie feels like it's late. It's catching up. Like it doesn't have time. Like we don't have time. You know, like, hi, I'm Lando. Hi, you want to use my ship? Yeah, sure. Let's go. I'm coming too. Okay, great. It, it just, um, it's, it's too efficient for its own good. And I think it's that fear of, of being boring. It's that fear of taking its time and then losing the audience. What if the audience gets uh, uninterested? Because what we're, the story we're telling here is, doesn't have the scale and the stakes of a, a regular Star Wars film. So it's kind of an insecure, it's a bit insecure, the screenplay in this film. I wonder if that was, I wonder if that's maybe the issue with Lord and Miller. Because as we know, obviously, they were thrown off the film because they, I think we, um, we discussed this back in December. But it was, they are very, uh, they like doing multiple takes. They are very uh, improvisational in their style and they're reading Lawrence Kasdan's script and they're like, geez, this film is dr- like, it's serviceable, but it's very dry. And they figure, okay, we can sit there. He won't be on set a hundred percent of the time. We can try to do this. And obviously Alden Ehrenreich's probably being coached to probably say these lines in such a meticulous way that he doesn't know how to sit there. God, uh, be very off the cuff with them, improvise with them. And I'm thinking maybe that's what happened was that it, it obviously it came down to a dispute between Lord and Miller and Kasdan. And I think I was telling uh, Lewis in this in our uh, DMs, but I, I, the vibe I'm getting from this whole thing is that this was a Lawrence Kasdan vanity project. This was not a film that I think Lucasfilm wanted to make. This probably was almost conditional for getting Lawrence Kasdan back for Force Awakens. Was he probably said, if you want me for this, I want to make a Han Solo film. And and this is what you get. You get and again, everybody likes to worship uh, Lawrence Kasdan is the greatest filmmaker, is the greatest person alive in the Star Wars universe when it comes to screenwriting. Ooh. Everybody forgets though Lawrence Kasdan. I like. I, I think I haven't brought this up in a while, but he is the infamous director behind Dreamcatcher, which is a film about poop monsters. So not the good got, one, like Dogma. 
No, not the good one like Dogma. The bad one. The bad poop monster movie. Like Dreamcatcher. Like Dreamcatcher. This is the guy that that we're supposed to be told is the uh, the oracle of Han Solo and everything that he does and his behavior and what he would ever say. Um, never mind, I don't think John Kasdan. You know, John Kasdan had directed one of my favorite films. I don't think he's either. Again, it's another Josh Trank, Gareth Edwards, where you're hiring a very young uh, I don't know, a screenwriter, and they're not tried and true. And this is what you get. You get a very, I think like Lewis said, it's a very uh, 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 efficient script to a fault. Yeah, you also The Bodyguard with Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, he's done a lot of things. Uh, Body, he, no, he's made good films. But I, 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 that was back during the 80s and 90s. Like, there's, there's a, I don't want to say the word or term has been, but that's the kind uh, of vibe I get from Has been, has been. Uh, boo. Boo. You're just you're just angry you didn't think of it first. Oh yeah. Um but yeah, like I said, I I this film has its problems. Um the problem is that it's a very fun film, so it's hard to uh like I said, like when you look at things like Justice League or Suicide Squad, you look like this like like Justice League is comical from the onset because of the Superman cell phone footage. And, just, <laughs> and Suicide Squad like introduces you to the characters like 15 times in the first like five minutes of the film because you're just like, what is going on here? Um, where this film again, it's it, it works. It, it's a serviceable film. I think like if you looked like I don't know if it's still a thing, but like uh, oh god, like, like when Roger Ebert and like Leonard Maltin said they're like they're like uh, phone books sized like movie reviewing books they had like the little capsule reviews that were about like 15 words like the, like the definition would be a serviceable star wars story and that would be it it's like, like two and a half out of four stars and i think that's the best way to describe this film to um non-diehards it's also hard to remember what happened in the film like if i was really asked you know like a, a proper quiz or like a proper uh, interrogation as to what happened in the film like i think people would suspect that i haven't seen it but i have i just i don't remember oh, i don't know you know you get asked hey what scene was or what dialogue was terrible and you sit there blankly just staring at your computer monitor for a minute <laughs> it's not like that just happened <laughs> but oh yeah there's that one scene that's really doesn't work in that movie and it's when the robot unfortunately doesn't make it and uh, and they have that scene that's supposed to be very emotional, but honestly, I don't know that robot. I couldn't care less. Like it's, it's not R two level of attachment here. It's just yeah, it's Lando's robot that just died, I guess. And and the way they play that scene, it's as if like the the audience is very invested, and they're not. I think I, that is a good point, but I think that sh that character is only there. To ex to give a quasi answer to why the the like, the, the weird like lines of dialogue in the Empire Strikes Back or or Han says like and we mentioned it in our solo review but it's like we call it we oh I when Han Solo tells C three PO oh I need you to talk to the Falcon and figure out what's going what's wrong with her and then when C three PO says um, I I don't know where your ship learned to speak this particular dialogue I'm not familiar with. And then plus you have the whole thing. It has thing. such an interesting dialect. Your ship has a very interesting dialect. Exactly. I think that's the line. Yes, you said it correct. I didn't. And then even like you yeah. see her, even when you see her in the cockpit in the film, and she's like, she got, she got Lando's trying to get the uh, coordinates out of her, and so she like bangs her head. 
And then you obviously have the scene Empire Strikes Back where Han Solo walks into the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, turns the ship on, and it doesn't start on or, or kind of like uh, stalls. And so he bangs the exact spot where she was installed and the ship turns on. Like, like that was a weird – Like as, as cynical as we were about trying to predict Solo, um, I don't think anybody had it on their uh, Solo Productions bingo card. Um, why is Han Solo banging the Millennium Falcon to get started? You just kind of figure that's what people do sometimes. Like, that's just with any sort of like machine that you need to uh, that gets you from point A to B. Sometimes it doesn't work, so you just kind of like kick it in the right spot or like kind of hit it and it works. Um, but for some reason, they felt compelled to explain that away. But that is the interesting point, Lewis. Like L three does not uh, is not really a necessary character other than um, explain or demystifying the Millennium Cannon Falcon. Potter. No, I'd say demystifying the Millennium Falcon to a certain degree. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, like, like the the fact that she lives on within the ship into uh, into the other films we know and love. I I didn't I didn't see that aspect of it. Um, but um, I mean, overall, it was better than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be Justice League level. Of a, like a, a huge mess. I thought it was going to be a huge mess, and uh, it's not. I mean, it's pretty. It's pretty coherent, and people work really hard to to get to get it to that level. To, to get it at a level where people can walk out of a Star Wars movie and say, "Yeah, that was good. I had a good time." That is. It, it requires an insane amount of work just to get people to that point, um, and to do it in such a short amount of time. I think. I think they did everything they could, but sometimes you just uh, you can't save it. Is there anyone really walking out of this going that they hated it or that it was terrible? I don't think so. Yeah, it seems like everyone I've talked to and everyone's like, yeah, it's good. It's not the best it's, thing in the world, but it's good. Again, I think I think uh, Lewis addressed that. I think it's a very uh, inoffensive. It's an intentionally to its detriment inoffensive film. It's 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 so again as he described it. It's efficient to a fault. It's. It has no sharp edges, and that's what it is. And he like I think it's like after Infinity War, where you have half the characters turn to dust. It's like, oh, okay, that just happened. And again, it's, I guess it's kind of like the equivalent of I don't know what films came. I guess what was the summer of 1980? It's kind of like you have Han. So- think about it, Star Wars already had its Infinity War. Han Solo tur- is put into carbonite, um, and you have the revelation of Luke's father is Darth Vader. And you had to wait three years for that. So Star Wars kind of did already have its Infinity War moment where you end on a cliffhanger and it's like, okay, what's the next chapter going to hold? Plus, Last Jedi didn't even didn't really do that either, other than establishing the dice. And it's worth noting that the the dice in that film, considering how much they were built up in the marketing or the Star Wars fan marketing, and then even in The Last Jedi, think about the history of those dice really even aren't, aren't even explained. He just has them in the film. Like he puts it on the little uh, speeder dash, uh, rear view mirror, or whatever it is, and he just has them for the rest of the film. It's it, it's not it's just a, a I don't want to say token, but it's just it's an object, it's a prop, it's a prop that has inflated purpose because of the fan base. Hmm. That's it, Zanger. Just a meh. Yeah. All right, I'll take it. I have a question for Lewis. Out of all the territories where this film opened and underperformed, it outright bombed in China. Uh, everybody knows, obviously, the Chinese audiences are very, very lukewarm on this series, um, if not outright just turned off by it. Considering that when they cast uh, Donnie Yen, and I forget the actor that played Baze Malbus, 
and that really didn't help Rogue One that much. How do you think Disney's going to try to appeal to China even more? How, how are they going to do this? Are we going to get Vin Diesel in the Star Wars film? Is that what this is going to eventually lead to? Yeah, it's actually going to be Dominic Toretto, Star Wars story. I, I'd be on board for that. I think Zenger would be the first person in line. He's the only truly invincible character in, in every universe. Whatever, whatever film he appears in, he wins and he, and he beats the threat with no scratches. Exactly. He really beat that sniper's bullet in um, Saving Private Ryan. Oh, wait. No, he didn't. That was pre-Fast and Furious. He didn't have the power of a dog. Oh, so, so he got the power then, and then once he went there, from there, he was unstoppable, except for if it's a film about a guy named Riddick. Well, yes. In the box office. The character mythos of, of Toretto, as opposed to the, the, the wonderful actor who portrays him, who has <laughs> a stunning Academy Award-nominated films. Um, I think... Um, yeah, I, it's very uncertain what's going to happen because the international numbers are, are are also awful. And there's a lot of films that do very well internationally, even though everyone says they they're do, like they're a bomb and you know nobody went to see them. And like Amazing Spider-Man Two, uh, it made seven hundred million worldwide, even though like it it had one of the, it had similar numbers to to Solo, like it. Didn't crack 100 million opening weekend. I think it, it ran out of steam at 200. So people were like, oh, you know, Spider-Man is dead. But it's still, internationally, it did very well. Like, it's that's where the real profits are. Um, the fact that Star Wars movies don't do well in China, it's, I'm not too well-versed as to why that is. I mean, it's still like, The Force Awakens num like, numbers were insane everywhere, if I remember correctly, like. Like it just it beat records. Like it, it was it was giving Avatar a run for its money everywhere. Um, so like with the right marketing, the right approach, you know, it's still the biggest brand in movies. I think, uh, despite this this stumble, like a hockey team could lose eight nothing and make it a, a humiliating loss, but they could still be the best team in the league. Uh, they just had a horrible game. So what you're saying is that we shouldn't judge the entire state of Star Wars based on the performance of Han Solo, Star, Star Wars story. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, as of a couple months ago, you know, every Star Wars movie was, was cracking in, in the, 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 the five $600 million range, and we're talking domestic. Like, the fact that Rogue One did that well, it makes it very interesting as to why Solo did so badly. But it, it has to do with momentum. Like, there was so much momentum coming out of Force Awakens. People were just... Uh, a lot of people were fooled into thinking Rogue One was the next chapter in the episodes. Because that's that's how it felt. Like, if you don't know Star Wars, you're like, you know, I just saw the last one, I want to see the next one. And then they, they didn't follow... The, people don't follow trailers that much. They actually go based on, um, you know, television spots and digital. Digital is, is, a, is a huge marketing tool so they're like i'm talking about these 15 seconds or 10 second instagram twitter facebook they look like trailers but there's a lot of writing on them because most people are on mute when they use the internet so you'll see quotes like critics quotes and stuff that's how people are reminded to go to the movies uh and yeah i think uh 
I think the, the, the trailers for Rogue One were exciting and didn't tell you too much. So a lot of people believe that it was the, the, the next big Star Wars film. And maybe this time they were warned of the double standard. Like there's the episodes and then there's like this, this fluff in between. So maybe, maybe that also played into it. I don't know. Good point. We're going to talk about the the reveal of the certain character, or can we save that for later? Because I've got some news on that that's pretty interesting, I think. Louis, do you have any thoughts on Darth Maul? Any, any controversial thoughts or anything you want to put out there on the record? Controversial? Nope. I would say uh, I'm, I'm all ears. Uh, I just heard that he was a very, very late addition. Because if you notice, she never refers to him as Maul. She never acknowledges him as that character. It's just a very... You could have put anyone... You could have put me sitting there, and it would have had the same response. It was awkward. Well, no, it's... it's it's My, my thing is, I wanted to see if we were going to discuss, you know, the fact that someone in a Vader costume was seen on set. Could he have been that hologram originally? Or could it have been somebody else? There was that rumor of Darth Vader... Zenger, you weren't part of it, though, but in our solo review, our main one, Jim brought it up and says he, he couldn't figure out why it wasn't Darth Vader. He goes, it would make mu- considering that Darth Vader had so many side projects. Yeah, and um, no, it would have made perfect sense for the Empire to be fiddling with uh, the underworld, to make, you know, the underworld think, oh, we're this criminal organization, you know, we're running this, and it's actually, you find out, nope, Vader's actually the one that's actually in charge of it, because what better way to keep an eye on what quote-unquote, are your enemies than to be one of them or make them think you're one of them. It could have had Prince Zizor, Zizor, whatever the crap well, that Well, that one, well, you have, there would be more just befuddlement in the audience if you had that character over Maul. Maul, like I said, I, I, I was, okay, this is a question I have for Lewis with Maul. Um, do you feel that's more going backwards for this franchise where you're bringing back a character that 99% of the audience was uh, assumed was cut in half and dead? Well, he was cut in half. So uh, instead, and I, I don't think... Yeah, Zach. I, I don't think it's the, the reaction they were hoping for. But I mean, as an audience member, I was more questioning the timeline of what I just watched. Because I was like, is this happening before he was cut in half in The Phantom Menace? Because Anakin was a kid, but then Anakin became Vader. So... When is this happening if Solo's already uh, an, an adult? Like, uh, the, I spent a good five minutes, you know, <laughs> one, trying to understand if he, he was cut in half and he survived somehow, or it was before his death, which means, like, you know, to me, it makes no sense. Like, I, I don't understand. Uh, to, like, his, his cameo appearance only makes the stakes of the film even smaller. Because people remember, people remember him as a henchman, like a very talented martial arts, double sword swinging henchman, and then that's the guy who's in charge of the guy who was in charge of the guy who was in charge of the heist. <laughs> like, like it's like Took an, a lot of steps there. Yeah, it's like a a piece of dust under a shoe, but then when you really look at it with a magnifying lens, then there's another shoe in there with another piece of dust, like. It's like how small scale can this film get? So at least like Vader, I don't know. I think um, I think there has to be a reason why they decide to go with that. And I, I don't I don't understand how it would be fan servicing 
either. So, yeah, I, I, kind of, I don't know. Well, I think is that there's going to be again because there's that Boba Fett film that's that rumor that's floating out there with James Mangold. There's the Obi Wan movie, which is just a question of when, not if. Uh, and I, and not to repeat myself, to people who are listening, but I think they are going to do the. I think Zenger, you might have been the one who suggested this. There is going to be a uh, quote unquote underworld trilogy where yeah. it's going to be three films that all take place with the the criminal seedy underbelly of Star Wars. Heck yeah! And they're, they're going to make Maul the villain of that series, or the they're hero. Gonna, no, what? not what? a hero. Because that's because if you think about it, if you go back to all the prequel hatred of the late '90s, early 2000s, one of the unanimous agreements amongst the detractors is Maul was a great character that was wasted, and I think that's they are trying to do here. They're trying. They're st- they're still trying to bring on board the 40 to 45 year old fans, the Gen the Gen Xers who despise the prequels. There for some reason they're abs- There must be somebody in the Lucasfilm executive suite that absolutely feels that they need to bring these, these fans on board. And I think they feel that's the easiest. You're way never going to gonna please them though. Well, yeah, they're you're just going to resent you. Well, yeah. And I think that's what they're gonna do. I think I wouldn't be surprised if the Boba Fett film has, you see Maul once again, or maybe like an, an Obi-Wan maybe, because again, the, the Obi-Wan movie should be something. It's going to be a very small scale movie. Uh, if, if, if they want to prove that you can make a very well-made Star Wars film with like a $60 million budget, there it is. Um, you only need like two or three sets. You don't need uh, anything large. And I think they're going to make Maul the villain of that because and that's what's going to be. And it'll explain why he shows up later on in the cartoons with his whole thing with Obi-Wan. And I wouldn't even... I remember... Um, I, uh, Lewis, are you familiar with any of the animated series on TV? Not that much. Not to the not to the level that you guys discuss it, but I'm always interested to hear. All right. Um, back during Star Wars Rebels Season 3, um, when Darth Maul confronts Obi-Wan and is killed, um, I remember when that happened. Spoiler I, alert. Yeah, spoiler alert for uh, an episode of a show that's a year and a half old. Um, I was really max. I was convinced they were going to have a Darth Maul versus Darth Vader fight. I was apps because I think there was even a comic uh, that was. This was like back during like the mid two thousand. Yes, there was. Vader stabs himself through to the chest, through the chest, uh, through the stomach Maul. area, whatever. And and I was convinced we were going to get something like that. And I said, "There's no way that how could they resist doing that?" And it didn't happen. And I'm like, "Well, waste not waste opportunity, but like that, there's some fertile ground there." So I wouldn't be surprised. Considering that we we're not going to get the Obi Wan Maul rematch in any live action film, I think I think Darth Vader a Star Wars story is also inevitable at this point. I think they know that's where the money's at. If they are going to do these uh, prequel spin off films, they're going to have to do it around characters that um, that are beloved. They, they can't they can't do um, Bosk a Star Wars story or I'm trying to think of another character nobody cares about. Um, a Greedo, a Star Wars story. The bartender at the cantina, a Star Wars story. They, they can't do that. So I think you would. I, there might be so many elements, and that's maybe why we didn't get Darth Vader in this. Um, when it comes to Lucasfilm, again, think about it. Boba Fett is the second most popular character in Star Wars. He sells the, as a character. He sells the second most amount of merchandise. Again, only second to Vader. And yet, Disney has owned Star Wars now for over five years, and we've only gotten one story with that character. 
and it's a short story that's about six pages long. And it's the and it's it, it's not there's nothing to it, and I think they are saving that character. And notice that outside of the comic, and uh, I think a couple episodes of Rebels, we haven't seen that much of Vader. Vader's always floating out in the ether, but he's we haven't really gotten him any sort of serious capacity. And I think they are saving a lot, and like Obi Wan, Obi Wan's been in one episode of the TV series. And that's it. So I think a lot of these characters, again, just going forward, Lewis, if you ever talk to anybody about Star Wars, if you want to gauge on what characters they're going to use for movies or the media that brings in the big bucks, the less you see of them in other media, the smaller ones, chances are that means they're being put aside for more important things. Uh, That's why I think you're never going to get an Ahsoka. I know there's a stupid rumor going around they're going to make the Obi-Wan movie and Ahsoka's going to be his sidekick in that. That's a rumor that's going around that has no basis in reality um because ah- ahsoka is a character that a that's gonna be really hard to do not hard to do live action but that's gonna be a very costly character that's got to be a very uh cgi heavy role with an actress and it should be okay cost wise i mean these films are 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 bigger than the gdp of, of most countries <laughs> <laughs> that Take is very that true. most countries that's that's a statistic that most people aren't aware of I think I think Ahsoka Tano would be a very appealing character to do in the, in a Star Wars film, for uh, you know the same argument as Harley Quinn. Um, Harley Quinn was not sort of an official character of sorts in the Batman universe, and she she was created I think much later than a lot of the iconic characters. But when you see a character earning its place in the in the overall uh, like collective consciousness of a of a universe, and yet that character has never been portrayed on screen. There's a, uh, always excitement around it. It's like we're finally going to see Harley Quinn as in, like in an actual film, as opposed to a character that's been done and done and done like several times. Um, so I think uh, I think that'd be a good one, and she's connected to Anakin quite a bit. So like. If they do an Obi-Wan movie, would that make sense to have Ahsoka Tano in it? Okay, I agree with you on most of that. The only two things I'm going to push back on. Um, one, Harley Quinn was... Okay, Zenger, you're the comic book guy here. Harley Quinn showed up, what, in the 90s animated Batman series? You are correct. And that started when? Like around, 30, what, 30 years ago, give or take? Uh, 90s, so getting there. All right, so 25, 30 years ago. So the character's been in the public consciousness for about three decades. Um, Ahsoka's been around for less than a decade. Um, and the second thing that's worth noting, too, is that even before the, uh, the Margot Robbie incarnation of Harley Quinn, you, you had not, okay, I don't want this to sound um, derogatory, but the, the sorority girls aren't dressing up as Ahsoka Tano for Halloween. There is this sort of like a pop culture zeitgeist around Harley Quinn even before the Margot Robbie portrayal of it that was there and obviously Margot Robbie just made made that character explode even in all the even before that movie even came out she was the only reason why people were really excited for that film uh, I don't think even though the Star Wars fan base does like Ahsoka and there's excitement there I feel that would be it's it's something that you'd really have to convince the mainstream audience of because Again, the reason why everyone keeps complaining that Solo isn't making money because the Star Wars fans are boycotting it, and I think it's the exact opposite. I think Solo's only surviving in the state it's in right now is because the fans are booing it. 
And I think, I would imagine 99% of people who went to go see The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi have no clue who that character is. Unless you introduce the character, like in a uh, uh, the Star Wars TV series for the Disney streaming service, if you make her the focal point of that, and like you have that, I, I don't know when that would take place continuity-wise of Star Wars, so you introduce her to an audience for the first time that really doesn't know who she is, and then you bring her into an Obi-Wan movie, I think that would be a nice stepping stone. But just to take her from animation and then directly... Because think about it, you could, you could hire an actress who's relatively unknown, sign her for like a, like a, a three-picture deal, but then have her start off as like a 10-episode miniseries on the streaming service, and then have her step off from that into the movies. So it wouldn't be like, oh, we're casting Margot Robbie, who can ne- who's never going to sit there or settle for TV, and then expect her to go back and forth. I, I could see them doing that, but it would have to be a, a very, oh God, a planned, contrived process. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, like a lot of people had very, very strong arguments as, as to why Solo was the right move. Conceptually, it was, the, it was the right path for Star Wars, and it was going to make a ton of money, and don't worry, everything's going to be fine. So, I mean, these people had, had their own strategies as to what appeals to the masses. I think there's still a bit of excitement when, it, when you, there's a very short list of characters that are well-known and that have never been done in a movie. Um, so, like, I, I think about Venom in, the, in Spider-Man 3. Um, like, Venom is kind of like Harley Quinn. He was created by, I think, Todd McFarlane in the 90s, and he's not, like, the official classic uh, Sinister Six. But he had his own hype and following, and then to know that they're going to do it in the movie, even though the way they did it was just way off, and hopefully they'll, they'll fix that this year with the Tom Hardy movie, there's still an excitement because it's like, it's the first time we're going to see this character that we have seen in so many other outlets and as like so many mediums. And then this is the ultimate one. Like this is the big budget live action. Um, and this character, if you ask me, like if you ask me like most popular or most iconic star Wars character that's never appeared in a star Wars film, I would put her at number one. All right. She is there, though, but I think you would, much like, I think if Solo has taught us anything, you cannot take the Star Wars brand or for granted. You can't just drop these these characters into a movie. And um, I think there is a difference between Han Solo and Ahsoka and just expect the audience to be on board. You do have to, I think we've already discussed it, but you do have to walk the audience. You have to lead the horse to the water. You can't just sit there expecting to find it on its own. Um, like yeah. you said, the, the Star Wars fans who are plugged into this, like us, we know when to sit there, go to the theaters. But uh, like mom, mom and pa in Kansas, they, they don't know. All they know is that there's some there, there's a commercial on TV during Dancing with the Stars, and that's it. And it's like, well, we've already spent our $35 to go see Avengers and IMAX this month, and we're going to hold off until Jurassic World or right, right. till Ocean's 8. Or Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. I'm not sure if that's a. I don't think that's comparable, but I couldn't think of another release coming out in July. It's um, big. It's it's Mission Impossible Fallout. I thought. Oh, I'm sorry. It's just, I, I, it looks just like it looks just like Rogue Nation. So I, I keep calling Fallout that. My bad. Mission so. Impossible Twelve. 
think that's the I think it's the official title. Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible. You thought we stopped making these? Because I'm counting the other Tom Cruise vehicles as Mission Impossible movies, even though <laughs> they're not. So like the is, is, is he running in it? Yeah, he's running. Then it in counts. It. Then it counts with a cloud of uh, of dust behind him. So like to me, the Mummy is a Mission Impossible movie. It just he's undercover. It features a mummy, but really, it's Mission Impossible Mummy Protocol. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if they marketed the film that way, it would have done much better. Oh, the mummy! I, that that movie, uh, that movie, so much. That, that movie. Oh God. Okay, Lewis. I've been saying this now for like a few months now. I want to get your opinion on this. Um, this is more of like a Hollywood uh, as a whole. Um, considering that we've had so many films now, they're like, and this happens all the time in Hollywood, but it, it's much more publicized now than it was. That you have all these films that are like greenlit, get like kind of like uh, Josh Trank Star Wars movie, or like the the oh god the Dark Universe. All these films that are like like, like greenlit, and then just they, they die after the first film just bombs. Um, as you know, like we get like all these horror stories, like Alien Three. We know the horror stories behind that. Um, I'm trying to think of another one off the top of my head that had like I kind of like uh, the Roger Corman Fantastic Four film, uh, Richard Stanley's. Uh, Island of Dr. Moreau, like you get like, like 15, 20 years after all these like studio films just bomb or just like really tumultuous productions, we get the the really interesting story behind them. Do you think 15, 20 years from now or even longer, are we going to learn about what happened during like Gareth Edwards' Rogue One or – or the mummy with Tom Cruise. Are we going to learn the history behind these, or this, or these things? Just these stories going to die with the actors and producers in like fifty years? It just depends how interesting the story is. But there's always going to be someone who who worked closely in the business, sometimes from the outside, and and sometimes uh, one of the people who's at the, the centerfold of, of what happened, who's going to be writing a book or just trying to. To revisit it, just like I think the best example you're looking for was the giant spider, Superman, Kevin Smith story. Oh yes, yes. With John Peters, where he's like, "Get me that spider now," and Superman can't fly and he can't wear his cape or his suit or like this list of requests, and then he ends up doing Wild Wild West as a producer, and it has this spider. Yes. <laughs> I think uh, someone made a bet on that. I'm, I'm going to put a giant Spider movie. You'll never do it. I'll show you. Like, well, he's that, obsessed with that. Like. Oh, John Pierce is great. I, oh, he's, I, he's, I, I think in the last couple of years, like, what was it? He, got, he said something like, I'm a Trump supporter. And like, he got so much media attention for that. And like, all these stories came out about him. And he's, he's such a fascinating person to like, like read about because he he's the definition of just like an insane Hollywood producer during like the 80s and 90s. He's he's everything. Like if you think of somebody writing a, a tell-all book about the Hollywood, uh, how the sausage is made, you couldn't ask for a better person. I mean, if you, if you're really interested in it, the, there's a a book called uh, Hit and Run that was written by Kim Masters. Kim Masters works for the Hollywood Reporter. I think she still does, and then she has this uh, this radio show called The Business, and then she wrote another book which is even better called The Keys to the Kingdom, The Rise of Michael Eisner and the Fall of Everyone Else. And it's about, oh. it's about Disney in the 90s and all the internal power struggle and all the, uh, you know, the insanity that was going on and how some projects were greenlit, other ones were trashed. And it's, 
you know, there's always there's all these stories when they're great, they're always gonna come back because people oh, will be asked about them. Like people will, will say like, and and whatever hatchets have to be buried. Like I think 20, 30 years is more than enough for people not to have hard feelings about these things. And then there's also Waterworld. That was the oh, yeah. movie where like they built sets that cost like a hundred million dollars, and then at some point like their set just sank. <laughs> it was gone. Like they just showed up and the set was just not there anymore. Well that's oh yeah. Like like this like people have to realize like people hear about these things like like Gareth Edwards in Rogue One and like and these things like in Josh Trank and Fantastic Four and like, oh my god, can you believe this happens? And people are like, This has been going on forever. Like this is this isn't new. This isn't a novel concept for Hollywood. And the problem is that like Hollywood used to like twenty years again, like I said, fifteen, twenty years. Like I the one I was also thinking of beyond um Superman Lives was um Alien Three with David Fincher. Like they, I know on the Alien uh, Blu-ray box set, there's like a two hour documentary about how like there was like the three or four directors that were involved with that, like the seventeen screenwriters, the fact that they had a poster made before the film even had a completed script. And like, and, and didn't like they even offered Dave again? You know this, Lois. I'm just kind of repeating it for the audience. But they even offered to like let him come back and like re-edit the film to what he thought it was. He told them to go like f themselves. It's like, like I want that. Like, like 15, 20 years from now, I want to see Gareth Edwards tell his take on this, and I want to see like like Edgar Wright's Ant Man. Like that's gonna make like 15, 20 years from now. There's gonna be a documentary that's gonna win an Academy Award called. Edgar Wright's Ant-Man. And it's going to be one of those things everyone's just going to lose their mind over. Disney's looking at this stuff not like Fox looking at the Alien franchise. They're looking at this stuff like 50 to 100 years down the line, not like 5, 10 years when egos have calloused over. I mean, usually when there's a... like the house cleans up completely and it's not the same people in charge. So it's like as long as there's going to be like Lawrence Kasdan and uh, I'm just naming his name like like people who are the same as the originals, like you know, you have to, you need to have a completely different crew in charge, like just a new generation, a new creative team. That's usually when those egos go to bed and and people you know start being more anecdotal about these conflicts. Uh, but yeah, filmmaking was always a huge mess. I think you know, like you've all heard of Apocalypse Now, and you know, making films back then when it was all practical it led to a lot more meltdowns than now because so much can be saved in the post-production um, and, and in the editing room. Like there's so many tools that are not physical and that don't have to happen on camera perfectly once at a cost with hundreds of people working to make it happen. Like now, you know, filmmaking is, is just a bunch of dailies that are, are being, you know, put together and assembled uh, in front of a computer uh, that's that's the majority of filmmaking now whether it's on the special effects or the the sound mixing or like back then everything happened on set and yeah there's a ton of stories like there's a ton of documentaries i think hearts of darkness is the name of the documentary about apocalypse now like like that stuff would never happen again i don't think like that's just like insanity like you said, Nick, it's kind of like even like the, the most uh, famous example is Jaws. It's like all the problems they have with Jaws could probably be fixed today in about two months in the editing bay 
because you just sit there. You, you, you again, think about it, Jaws would be a movie that'd be reshot by today's standards. It's like you got Steven Spielberg spends nine months in Martha's Vineyard trying to get shots because the shark doesn't work, and because uh, all these just sort of little miscellaneous problems arise. And now he would have been fired probably halfway through filming. Uh, a more a well seasoned director would have been brought in, done it probably very small scale, um, very safe. And that's what it would have been. So no, it's 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 fascinating. I just wanted. To, I was always curious what your take on this would would be. So I that's a good point you bring up about the fact that um, when when the old guard leaves and the new one enters, that's when we'll probably get a lot of the the dirt will rise to the surface. Yeah, especially when people who are involved tend to have illustrious careers, then there's going to be documentaries about them, which will go into detail as to you know each production and how they felt about it. I think, yeah, I, th I think like Terminator Genesis, you know, people are already being thrown under the bus. And that's, that movie's what, like uh, three years old, maybe? Like 20 yeah. minutes. Like it doesn't take that long anymore. But obviously you made a good point. Like when it's Star Wars, you know, the scrutiny, or when it's Marvel, like there's just so much money attached to that. They're much more protective than just, you know, some film that went over budget. There was another Terminator too, the one with uh, Christian Bale. I don't remember the name. Salvation, maybe. Yes. Yep. Yeah, yeah. There's the epic like meltdown on set <laughs> that like went viral. Where he's just oh, like, the the lighting was it the lighting technician. He's just screaming at him for like five minutes straight. Yep. Oh, good, good for you. <laughs> That's, <so> <laughs> <laughs> That's such a classic. Uh, but yeah, like I would say, just working as a trailer editor, I I, I realized that most movies are bad and troubled in their production to certain levels because you can be a troubled production with competent people who work really well together and then they just make it happen. They find a way. They just, they, they, but it, it is making major motion pictures is just, it's problems after problems after problems every day. Like you can't even shoot properly because you're constantly being plagued with problems And then it depends on what kind of team you have in place and how solid and specific your vision is and how collaborative and supportive the studio execs and the producers are. Um, but it's still very, very difficult. And I, when you get to the end of that process, your movie is usually bad. Very rarely will the movie come in and it's amazing before people have worked on it. And then I'd say like 70, 80% of the films come in and they're bad. And by the time people who work in post have done their magic, then they've turned it into a good or even great film because there's well, so much done. Isn't that what everyone said about the original Star Wars is that the only thing that saved it was the editing room? Yeah, the post-production, the music. I mean, like John Williams is post-production, right? He's not on He's not on set like with his orchestra. So, like the, I'd like just, to think he is. Yeah, it sounds like he is, but I mean, it's... What I mean is like the, the placement of the song or like well, which score are you going to use in which scene that goes beyond what he composed. Like that's all post-production decisions. And um, yeah, I mean, what you take out of a film, you're not accountable for. It's as if you never shot it. It's as if it didn't exist. If you take out a character out of a movie, no one will, will, will hold you accountable for it if they don't know it exists or it was supposed to be in the film. So um It's it's the art of uh, of deleting what doesn't work and hopefully still have 90 minutes to two hours by the time you're done that process. 
I think uh, I think Sylvester Stallone gave the perfect analogy for filmmaking or or major Hollywood filmmaking. It's kind of like putting a tuxedo on in the pitch black dark. If if you're able to do that, um, you will be you will be worshipped in Hollywood, and the studio will always say, "Do that again." And it's very hard a to do that in the first place. Never t- never mind doing it again and again and again and again without ever having a single fault. I, I think I think that's the best way to sum up Hollywood filmmaking. But um, yeah, God dang it, this stupid. Heredity or whatever it is is getting nine. Oh my god, this is gonna be one of those movies that's gonna haunt me. Well, horror's the big thing now. Look at a quiet place, it horror, I guess a horror proper. I, I guess you could call it that. That's that's where the big money is now. No, horror movies are supposed to be do terrible in theaters, wait on the shelf for five years, and then become cult classics. Do it Evil Dead style. Well, I think, uh, I think, uh, studio produced horror films have always been subpar or perceived as subpar like less scary and less impactful because their production values are so high and um horror was sort of um, less is more an independent you know like we're gonna make it very uh uh unrated and uh, like we're not gonna hold back on anything because we're an independent like we're not a studio thing like we're not we're not gonna be like a pg-13 and um, for some reason, especially Warner Brothers, but for some reason, the big studios are, are, are producing some really high-quality horror films in the last five years. It could have to do with Blumhouse because he just made so much profit that everybody started paying attention and saying, like, how does he do it? Um, but, uh, yeah, big, I would say big-budget horror is back, and that, that wasn't there before. And, it's, and I it's, could care less. My place is really good. It's not really a horror film. It's more like Signs, like the M. Night Shyamalan movie. Ellie so saw it and she loved it. I haven't. Suspenseful, but it's not a horror film. Like, I wouldn't call it a horror film. Speaking of. Okay, because I feel badass, because, again, Lewis is the insider for all this. Like, I'm surprised that we haven't. I guess I guess now all. Like, I'm a. I love the slasher films. I love my Jason. I love my Friday. I know uh, there was Friday, um, Halloween coming out at the end of the year. I'm really surprised considering the fact that those films were originally like all made for like on like a shoestring budget and yet it's been like almost what like a decade since they've made like a Freddy or a Jason film and nobody's willing to go back to the well for that. That's just I, I considering you can like, you can make those films so cheap that they refuse not to. Ever since Michael Bay's like we're going to make a Friday the 13th film for 30 million dollars, Hollywood's absolutely refusing to ever do that again with those fran- horror franchises. Yeah, I think I think Freddy is is a difficult uh, one to crack because you know he was portrayed by an actor who is pretty much the character. So I think when um, Rorschach was was cast yep. as Freddy Krueger, he did he did as good of a job as he could. But I mean, he, th- that character has so much personality that's proper to the actor who portrayed him that it's difficult to just re- restart it with another actor. Uh, the way you can do with so many other characters, and then yeah, uh, yeah Friday the Thirteenth. I think it's a matter of time. Like they're probably working on it as you speak. That's like I said. That's another one. I because I remember like that 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 movie made money though. But it's like it's like you think. I mean, I think Friday the Thirteenth is tied up like right. I think I think there's a lot of uh, litigation over that film or that franchise. And but it's like considering that you like there's so much money to be had. You think whoever is just arguing in court, but you know what? We can make more money 
by by just splitting this rather than arguing over who gets the whole pot of it. And it's it's like I said, I don't know. That's that that's neither here nor there. I'm I'm just, I'm just surprised considering that we're kind of having a like you said a revival of um, blockbuster or major studio horror films. Um, I was just surprised by that. But no, I have one last um, uh, Hollywood question for Lewis. What is the? I was having a discussion with a friend recently. Jurassic World. What is that film tracking at right now, box office wise? I heard like 150 million. Has it gone up since? Eight point three on IGN's review of it. That, that's not box office. I'm just giving you the review number. Well, thank you. I, if IGN had any value with me, but they gave uh, Star Wars a seven. Great. Uh, anything about the box office on Jurassic World you've heard? I think it's. I think they're looking at 140, maybe, tracking so 140 million opening. Okay, so it is going to be a sizable step down from the first one. Yeah, I think the first one was, uh, you know, overperformed in every standard pod. Like people did not see that coming. Um, my explanation as to why Jurassic World brought in so many people is because it had such a good pitch. Like the storytelling, um, there's two ways you can sell a, a movie with, with storytelling and then with mood. Um, so like, I don't know if you guys saw the trailer for Suspiria um, from the Call Me By Your Name director. That's I think the trailer came, like it dropped yesterday, yesterday morning. Um, mm-hmm. There's no dialogue at all. It's literally just scenes that are increasingly disturbing. And I think the, the soundtrack is from Tom York from Radiohead. And it's it's all mood. And then you can also do a very good job selling a film through storytelling. Like, here's here's what happens in this one. Like, here's why you should come. And I think Jurassic World had the best storytelling pitch ever, which is the original films, um, the, the original Jurassic Park was all about this billionaire who had a dream and never managed to achieve it, this film is going to show you what a, a functioning, um, successful Jurassic Park would have been, which is sort of a promise we're, we're being given in in the original film, and it's never achieved. So it, it's a much different premise than they're going back to the island now that the dinosaurs are roaming free for some stupid reason. Uh, which was the other sequels like the other Jurassic Park sequels were always like oh we got to go back again like I think in the third one like I nobody remembers why they had to go back but like it's like there's always an excuse of some sort um, and I think this film it's marketing at least it looks more in that vein of like oh we have to go back the park is gone like the park is gone is not as good of a pitch as the park is actually open, like it's happening. And, and I think that people were very curious um, when that first trailer dropped and they got to see, like there's also Chris Pratt was off Guardians of the Galaxy. And there was a lot of, of just the way Solo had a lot of factors that accumulated into it doing poorly. Like Jurassic World had so many factors that were just perfectly aligned for it to do well. And this one... Eh, like people aren't that excited about it, I don't think. I do another podcast about movies, and we were talking about Jurassic World and the opening of Jurassic World 2 last night. And um, I, because I was trying to explain to the person I was talking to, I'm like, oh, like it's gonna be different because when Jurassic World opened up, it was kind of like, like Age of Ultron underperformed that summer, and there really wasn't anything massive in the weeks before that. 
Whereas this year, obviously, you have Ocean's 8, which is going to be counter-programming. Counter You're going to have Incredibles 2, which is going to steal that family audience away at least for a couple of weeks. Um, whereas Jurassic World did not have that level of competition levied against it. So I was just curious in your uh, professional opinion what you saw of that. So thank you for that. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think, I think the reviews are looking decent. Um, the director has done some really interesting stuff. He's the only reason why I want to see this film. If, if it was Colin Madman Trevorrow directing it, um, you, you couldn't get me further away from, this, from the theater. Madman. I don't know. Oh, I, yeah. like, I like Jurassic World. I thought it was funny. It, the movie ends on a um, sort of a crescendo that leads to a bit of a uh, World Wrestling Federation um, uh, feel to it. You know, they, they, they bring out they bring out the bread the hitman heart of of the park, which is the the T Rex, and then the door like opens up, and the people are in the theater are cheering. Like it had that very um, it had a lot of sportsmanship, like uh, mm harder. -hmm. And I I had a good time. It was a good that, foreign movie. That might be the only. Like I said, don't get me started on that film. I think that film is everything that's wrong with a, a soft rebooting in Hollywood. Um, that ending is one of the few, very few uh, redeemable parts of that film. But um, I, the reason why Colin Trevorrow has a nickname Madman, I'm not sure if you saw. It's like about a month ago. He was on Twitter telling people that the Book of Henry is a uh, carbon copy of Star Wars: A New Hope narratively, and um, I tweeted to him saying, "You are a madman." And he liked the tweet, so ever since then, I call him Colin Madman Trevorrow. Um, he might be one of the most fascinating people in Hollywood because he really, I think either um, he's the most incompetent filmmaker in Hollywood or he's so self-aware of the contempt he has for his uh, audience. I made the analogy of he's like a farmer who feeds his pig slop, and every once in a while he, he craps in the slop to see how much of it the pigs will eat. And when the pigs eat all of it, um, he gets even angrier, and then he makes the Book of Henry. And I, I think that's the best way to describe Colin Trevorrow. He just he, he's, he's a madman that does not know when to stop uh, pushing the envelope. Yeah, I think we'd have to see more from him. I'm not sure if you heard this either, but um, the Star Wars Episode Nine review, or not review, um, like there was like story leaks that have come out about that. And um, from like a redditor that apparently like got the last Jedi like two years in advance, like a lot of the plot points nailed down, and like and everyone was like, oh, like and it's a lot of weird things like Kylo Ren and, and Ray have like a love child together that's like never established. Um, Leia saving uh, Ray from like a fight where Kylo Ren almost kills her. Everyone's looking at these ideas, saying this is horrible. Why would JJ do this? And we talked about it, like, there's no way this is J.J. A, it's way, it's not enough nostalgic for him. And two, this all smells of something that Colin Trevorrow would do. Because it just comes off of stuff in his style where it's like, nothing's sacred. Um, I'm going to make uh, rash, arbitrary decisions just to prove how, how, just, how zany and off the cuff I am. And like, like, as much as I dislike Jurassic World, after seeing Book of Henry, I would be absolutely intrigued with seeing... Colin Trevorrow's Star Wars Episode Nine. Like, like, I would die to see that film right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always exciting to s go to the theaters to, to see like something gone wrong that costs so much money. Like, exactly. You, you have to go because you're like, how, why, and who. 
on top of Josh, like seeing like Josh Trank's Boba Fett film, like, like the the documentary for that, I I want to be first in line thirty years from now making the unauthorized documentary Colin Trevorrow's Episode Nine. Like, like I, I'm I'm gonna be firmly in line, like at the studio saying I want all the storyboards, I want the the initial like script outlines, I I want all of it. I'm gonna make a fantastic documentary out of this. Nick, Nicholas um, Cage in a in a uh, a CGI suit outtakes like like the early footage when they were prepping it exactly that's that's why i want i want the uh colin trevorrow episode nine equivalent of nicholas cage in a sparkly superman costume i i want that i want that polaroid yeah it's but. it's kind of odd like going back to kathleen kennedy like it's it's odd how the the directors that were picked to you know rebuild the the star wars universe they all have that very unique voice and they all correspond to how you're describing Colin Trevorrow. Yep. Like it's like, uh, tr you know, trying to make their mark, being like off the cuff and uh, surprise and shock their audience. And then, and then so many of them are let go. Um, and at some point, like uh, Kathleen Kennedy said, you know, I, I wish I could hire Taika Waititi who did uh, Thor Ragnarok to make a Star Wars film. And then the, the running gag was like, so I could fire him later on because obviously he's taking too many risks. Well, that's it's it's because it, again, I think um, right after Lord and Miller, or no, it was right after um, Colin Trevorrow got fired from Episode Nine. People were like uh, tweeting to Taiko Waititi and like, you should do this. He's like, and he actually responded with, no, 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 I actually like finishing the films I start, and <laughs> and, and that's exactly what it is. It's like, like again, everybody again, obviously Kathleen Kennedy is trying to emulate the Kevin Feige Marvel formula, but it's worth noting that for Phase One of Marvel. Kevin Feige hired pretty much all established filmmakers. Like, yep. yes, like, like John Favreau, like was not the powerhouse he is now, but he did have films under his belt. He, he, he knew how to get along with the studio. Uh, you had, um, obviously Lewis Lettier is a, a he, he's competent though, for the most part it was Edward Norton that screwed, screwed up that film. Um, but then like even Joe Johnston and Kenneth Branagh, both competent filmmakers with a very established track record. And it's worth noting that none of them came, none of those filmmakers ever came back for phase two. And, and, and that's the, that's why it's like Kevin Feige knew, okay, if I'm going to get this started, I need to give a lot of credibility to my filmmakers, let them build the concrete foundation for this. Then I can slowly start to branch out and hire Shane Black. Uh, James Gunn, and then once those creative risks work out, you can hire Taiko Watiti. You can sit there have the guys who direct it. Again, you can have the oh my god, uh, the Russos. You can sit there. You, you can sit there, branch out a little bit more. And the problem, what's her name, Kathleen Kennedy, didn't figure out was you can't start off with the Phase Two plan for Phase One. You have to hire a JJ. You have to hire a Ron Howard. You need to you need that that uh, stable foundation. You can't just jump directly into the Josh Trank pool. Uh, just to point out for anyone listening, yes, we did say we were wrapping this up like twenty minutes ago. You are still listening to the same podcast. <laughs> All right, Zenger gives a good point. All right, Lewis. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm I'm not trying to stop us. I just was like, didn't we say we were wrapping this up a while ago? No, oh, no, it's fine. It's, it sounds like a message from our sponsors, like a. By the way, it's like one in the morning Eastern time. 
Yes, it is. It is one of the. But this is the thing about those that we we've done. Xenger can attest to this. We have done um, podcasts before, like even earlier than this, like at eleven thirty at night, and uh, we've had to completely redo them because they're just completely awful because everybody's tired and just incoherent rambling. Yet this is actually enlightening. Like I don't mind staying up until one in the morning if I have a a juicy topic with a knowledgeable guest like that. This this is all. Like thank you, Lewis. If I don't know what I'm talking about, I'm fooling you. So. Well, you're doing a good job. You're either a you're very knowledgeable or you're a great con artist. So, bravo, sir! I tip my hat to you. I would say um, the, the Kevin Feige versus Kathleen Kennedy discussion is is super interesting. Uh, I would say that uh, Feige also had his, his problems, uh, but he knows how to recognize the lack of fit very early on. So, like the Edgar Wright Ant Man, it wasn't that much of a, a problem because. It got taken care of early enough, um, and I, I think everyone forgot. But Ava DuVernay was in charge of Black Panther. Yeah, like no one remembers that at all. Because, and I'd love to see a documentary to find out what happened there. You know, they said she was too busy, like too busy for Black Panther. But like, yeah. you know, but but like it, it was taken care of right away. So I think the uh, the, the the biggest problem for Kathleen Kennedy is not hiring the wrong people but realizing they're the wrong people if you have an employee who's incompetent and treats people like you know but you let them go like three years after you hired them not good you know you're supposed to recognize that as early as possible because it affects everything so yep so okay this is the final question i'll everybody go um if kathleen kennedy is uh, let go yes i promise uh, if Kathleen Kennedy is let go, who do you think uh, in in the current Disney structure? Who do you think they would have? They would bring in. Do you think it would be internally, or they would bring someone in from an outside studio? I think they'd bring in someone from the outside. Any ideas on who that would be, or just like a guess? Oh, oh wait, hold on. I'm getting a call. Hold on, guys. I gotta take this. Uh huh. Uh huh. I'm gonna be running what? Right now? All right, I'm out, guys. Bye. I'm gonna go run Disney. <laughs> Star <laughs> Wars. <laughs> Part. You're running Disney Star Wars. Well, Zenger finally did it. He graduated on to bigger and better, better things. Um, no more Knights of Vader Zenger or Zeng this Zenger. So. Oh, no, that will still exist. It will just be super, super financed and have all the most high-tech, new-age stuff for podcasting, like video. Hey, guys, I- I'm not sure, but I'm seeing on Twitter right now, uh, Lucasfilm just announced Porgs, a Star <laughs> Wars story. Where'd that come from? That would have made more than Solo. <laughs> Dang right, it would have. I would have needed to take out a loan for all the tickets I would be buying. Yeah, to your own movie? Yes. You are record broken. Yeah, I think uh, just to answer your question, like uh, Jeff Robinov was at Warner Brothers for, for several years and is super talented. And uh, for some reason, they, they didn't give him the big job. They, they hired uh, Kevin Tsushihara um, instead. But he's the guy who gave us like the Dark Knight and like the Nolan trilogy, uh, Inception, uh, the Matrix, the Harry Potter movies, Gravity. Like he's like he uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Like his Warner Brothers record was like all sorts of risk taking that pay off. And uh, I think that guy should be running big movies, whatever they are, Star Wars or otherwise. So that would be my pick. All right, folks, you heard it here first. If Jeff Rabinoff ever gets the job, we are giving sole credit of that to Lewis. Lewis gets to sit there, put that on his uh, 
plaque one day or whatever he wants to have it. That'll be on his tombstone one day. He called this before anybody else did. The crystal ball. There it is. Hey, he was right last time. He said they should have moved. He says it was going to be a DCEU level disaster. They didn't move. So who knows, folks? He he's been he's been right once. There's no reason. Let's see if it's uh, more than just a uh, uh, isolated incident. So concludes this episode of the Knights of Vader, a Star Wars podcast. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at KOV Podcast. Check out SkywardFunSupply.com for all your toy needs. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you're currently listening to us on. For questions, comments, concerns, or snide remarks, contact me, Zach, on Twitter, at Rogue Knight, K-N-I-T-E, and on the Cinemodities Podcast, where I am talking Jurassic World. I just can't escape that film no matter how hard I try. And where can we find you guys? Uh, you can find me on my po- my. Um, main podcast sorry you guys are the side stuff uh every yep. monday talking um just all kind of nerdy random topics on the zing this podcast and Lewis, where can we find you uh you can find me on twitter at, at sleepy skunk i tend to uh i tend to tweet something every day and um, there you, go. you know sometimes it's positive it depends depends what's out there for every positive tweet there's a tweet about a wrinkle in time or annihilation right yeah, I mean, eventually I move on, but I have to find <laughs> another film that really I I think is getting a a free pass and shouldn't. There you go. Wait, also, which one got a free pass uh, in that scenario? Oh, that's uh, obvious. Yeah, I mean the, the two that were just mentioned were were uh, yeah, I mean that's another discussion. For another. Okay. That's for the we'll do that eventually when we discuss the uh, Gonzo bot- blockbusters of the current generation but anyway though i'd like to thank lewis for coming back on um make sure to check out not just his twitter account but his youtube channel sleepy skunk where his he has his epic trailer mashups they are fantastic i cannot recommend them enough and number two i would uh when lewis contacted me and said when am i coming back on i was uh, deeply humbled by that i've never had a guest host say usually i'm the one going to the guest host pleading like please come on my show please elevate it to a higher standard it was deeply humbling to have someone say, can I please come back on? So thank you for coming back, Lewis. It is appreciated. Uh, always a pleasure. Have a good night, everybody. See you later, Lewis. All right, we'll have you back on when um, Solo 2 comes out 50 years from now. We, we look when Alden Ehrenreich is old enough to be what Harrison Ford is currently in age. Actually, so, on that note, I would have loved for them to force Harrison Ford to just been on set every day. Not acted in the movie, just force him to be on set and be grumpy. Get off my set. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It'd be great. <laughs> That's the that movie I want to see. That, That's the Solo movie that has a $200 million opening weekend. Can I make the Blade Runner 2049 joke? Because the the, the, pr- the first promo um, pictures that came out for that film, it was Ryan Gosling in a, a super futuristic trench coat, and then Harrison Ford wearing a T-shirt, like like the two of them. And then the joke was that um, someone on set says, Mr. Ford, it's time for your costume fitting. And he's like, 
Fuck you. <laughs> oh man, that's that's a fantastic way to end this episode. I love it. I love it. Uh, but I don't say this often enough, but Lewis might be my favorite guest host we've had so far. He he really might. He's uh he's he's stellar, folks. Oh, but I don't want to say anything else because I feel like I'll ruin that high notes. <laughs>